This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. This week, we celebrate legendary film director Werner Herzog's birthday with a thrilling conversation from the archives. In 2012, Herzog came to the library to discuss his most recent film, Into the Abyss, as well as his four-part television series, Death Row. In this conversation with NYPL's Paul Holdengraber, Herzog talks about crime, human nature, and why he stands so firmly against capital punishment. When I thanked Werner Herzog for this recording which I received the day after asking him, he simply said, I recall, I enjoyed the job. Thank you, Werner Herzog. And thank you, Ricardo Cortes. For their continued support, I'd like to thank tonight Sutherland's, a member of lawyers for the New York Public Library Committee. Sutherland is a global legal firm. Thank you so much for your trust in what we do. You were here to support us when we had Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. And you are here today when we have Supreme filmmaker Werner Herzog. Thank you once more. Henry Schlieff would have loved to be here tonight. And I asked him, in his absence, to say a few words to Werner Herzog. I can't express what a privilege and honor it has been for me to work with such an extraordinary genius and storyteller as Werner Herzog. Our contributions to Into the Abyss and On Death Row are not so much artistic, but rather to provide the canvas on which Werner can paint, and in that regard, to make sure that his painting can be seen by as many people as possible. And Schlieff, I should mention, um, is the director of investigation discovery that made this row possible. Investigation Discovery is a very proud to showcase Werner's work to our large and very passionate audience and to spread Werner's mes message nationwide. Indeed, the essential mission of our network, Investigation Discovery, is to provide programming that entertains, informs, and on occasion perhaps even inspires. In that regard, with the work that you're about to see and discuss tonight, we can only express our heartfelt appreciation to Werner Herzog for helping us achieve all three of our objectives. Personally and professionally, I'm just proud to know Werner and to call him a friend whose kindness is exceeded only by his talent. After the conversation, Werner Herzog will sign some books. Thank you again to our independent bookseller, 192 Books, you will find Herzog's Conquest of the Useless, as well as an issue of Brick Magazine, containing the last discourse I had with Werner Herzog five years ago, entitled, and I leave it to your imagination how Herzog answers this question, was the 20th century a mistake? As well as a book we have here for all of you to read called Peregrine by J. A. Baker. For the past seven years, 
uh, no, for the past few years, I've asked our invited guests to give me seven words that describe them, rather than have a long introduction about who they are and all the works they've done. Have them for seven words. A haiku of sorts, or a tweet. This is what Werner Herzog wrote. Werner Herzog, filmmaker, originated in Zachrang, Bavaria. Now to the man himself, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to this stage, Werner Herzog. Hey, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you back here, Werner Herzog. Delight. You. Why those seven words? Uh, well, how can you describe yourself uh, biographically in seven words? Uh, I think uh, it has to contain the name, and uh, and uh, somehow I wanted to point to my origins, which is uh, Sachrang, a small village in the mountains where my mother fled. Uh, when Munich was under bombardment, uh, and I was only 14 days old. So, and, and uh, there I lived a wonderful childhood, very secluded, uh, very almost idyllic, although, of course, in post-war Germany, there was nothing idyllic. We were hungry, for example, and that's not very idyllic. But uh, it was a wonderful, very... Uh, concise and um, beautiful childhood I had. And of course, my affinity to mountains has never left me. That's my home. Uh, the mountains is my landscape. Snow is my element. I wanted to become world champion of ski flying, ski jumping. That was my dream. So pointing to Sachrang and to Bavaria is, is a natural thing. And you, you go back to mountains again yeah. and again and Just, again. Just uh, a good two weeks ago, um, I returned uh, from an expedition with my wife. Uh, we were at a plateau. You can uh, exactly tell where it is, where the borders of Venezuela, Brazil and Guyana have one common point, which is the Roraima Plateau, which was actually the role model of Conan Doyle's um, The Lost World. And right next to uh, this plateau, to this uh, uh, table plateau mountain, is another plateau, not very large, a few square kilometers wide, uh, Kukinan, which is uh, almost inaccessible. You can only climb as a serious mountain climber. There are two overhangs. It's you have to imagine there's jungle, hundreds and hundreds of miles of jungle brooding and steaming. And then you have two kilometer high vertical rocks, cliffs sticking out of it and on top plateaus, which are something like 10,000 feet high. 
and uh, up there it's constant uh, rainstorms. It feels like being under a cold shower for five days, non-stop. It just doesn't uh, stop. Are those the pictures uh, that Lena Herzog took? Yes, my wife actually. We were there f uh, in 2004 and we said we must go back there. We had only a few hours there and I helped her, she's a photographer, helped her to uh, do her photos. I actually play her mule once in a while and carry things and I try to shelter her camera with an umbrella together with a native guide. Let's, let's look at, at an at image how it or looks two. Like at there, a, yes. a and B maybe. Yeah. These this, are photographs that Lena Herzog took and that first were yeah. in Harper's Magazine, I think, in 2005. So I support her as much as I can. Right. She helps me sometimes when I make a film. Yeah, this, it, it looks very alien, like uh, a foreign landscape. These are huge rock formations, completely extraterrestrial. Can we show the next? <clears throat> yeah, it's quite, quite astonishing, but hard to move there. And uh, there are crevices, very deep, hundreds of feet deep. Can we move to the next? And people disappear. Uh, a 13-year-old boy disappeared and was never found. Never a trace of him was ever found. And it's mysterious. And the natives believe there are bad spirits up there. Can we see the next one? Yeah, that's a very characteristic. Uh, the rock on the right uh, is, is a huge, maybe... 30, 40, 50 tons heavy piece of rock on spindly legs suspended up there. It just seems to defy gravity. But I think there's one more picture, if not. Ah, yeah, we are at the same year. So we, we spent some time. It was very hard to evacuate us because we could only fly up by helicopter. And you have to wait until there's a window of opportunity because it's fog and mist and storm, rainstorms, you uh, have no visibility. Climbing itself was too tough because it's, it really requires... Uh, Even for you? I've never been that much into mountain climbing, but uh, it, yes, it would have been hard for me in my, in my best years. It would, even then it would be hard for me because there are two overhangs. Uh, and uh, friends of mine uh, were filming a little bit there and they moved... Uh, camera equipment and a crane and things and, and you just can't move it on your on your back. Quite extraordinary to hear the man who moved rather larger things across mountains say yeah. this. <laughs> no, I, I have a sense I have a sense of feasibility and I I know I know what can be done and uh, you just and there was a dream when I did uh, the white diamond and uh, uh, there was a dream to fly this uh, airship up onto these plateaus. You would be dead within less than 10 minutes. It's just you perish up there. The storms are too wild. They press you against the rock and, Vena, and you Before would we, we get to, yeah. to death, as it were, um, in, in, a, in a very... Well, before we get to death row, I'd like us to stop for a moment and talk about the current project you have an exhibition um, uh, up at the Whitney, yesterday um, night the, which opened, opened at the Biennial. And I'd like us to look at a couple of pictures 
of Hercules Segers. But before yeah. we do, maybe you want to say something and read yeah. a small passage. Well, I passage. was invited to, to do some sort of installation at the Whitney. I immediately declined and I had the feeling I do not belong in this type of museums of, of modern or contemporary art. My wife, Lena, actually persuaded me to accept it. And, and now I think it was good that I did it. And it was very much about a visionary uh, painter, or image maker, early, uh, Dutch painter, Hercules Segers, early Rembrandt time in the 1620s, 1630s. He created images and visions that are hundreds of years ahead of his time. And uh, I made an installation together with music and his images and the text that I wrote. So it's, uh, and we, we, I, if, if any one of you wants to go to the Whitney after this, we can call them and they may keep it open for you. <laughs> or otherwise, you have to line up tomorrow morning early. Uh, and Hercules Seger for you means something particular. It means... Yeah, great inspiration. Some, a boldness of vision. And I like, uh, I like these figures like Akhenaton, the pharaoh, who was a thousand years ahead of his time. Number one, creating a new style in painting in, in ancient Egypt and being ahead of time a thousand years as the first monotheist. Or, or people like Turner or Gesualdo, the uh, composer who in 1610 created music that only Stravinsky later somehow uh, picked up. Um, or Hölderlin as a writer and... Uh, I wanted to point to the father of all modernity in art. And the Whitney uh, agreed and they were quite enthusiastic and, and I'm very glad that I, that I accepted the invitation. But, it, but you discovered him, I mean, what is interesting, we'll, we'll look at some images, is you, you discovered him after producing some of your films that in a way resemble, yes. I mean, it's as if you embody the, the, the line of Borges where he says that, that uh, people create their predecessors. Yeah, in a way, it's a, it's a very, good, very good quote uh, because in, in many cases I had the feeling, yes, I'm inventing uh, those people and, and of course they are Hercules Segas or Gesualdo. They are like uh, uh, brothers inside of me that... I, I created myself and all of a sudden I discover them in reality. It's very, very strange. I don't know if I'll, I'll, I'll quickly maybe read those, line, those last lines. You say, personally, I owe Hercules Segers a lot. Um, I have a suspicion that a, a distant echo seems to resonate in a few moments of my own work. Hercules Segers' images of, and my films do not speak to each other, but for a brief moment... I hope they might dance with each other. Yeah. yeah Let's look at a couple of images. Yeah, can I see the text? I was... <laughs> well, I said a couple of good things about him. Uh, the, the exhibition, this installation, is called Hearsay of the Soul. His images, we can show the images and I read on. His images are hearsay of the soul. They are like flashlights held in our uncertain hands a frightened light that opens breaches into the recesses of a place that seems somewhat known to us, ourselves. We morph with these images. 
Caspar David Friedrich recognized this for himself. Quote, I have to render myself to what surrounds me, he said. Quote, I have to morph into a union with the clouds and the rocks in order to be what I am. It's just very beautiful. Maybe we can see I, I'd like us to see Hercules uh, Sega's yeah, images. What they are right there. I, They're right there, but I'd like us to you, turn now, if we could, yeah. to clip number one. Uh, we saw already some. Weihnachtstag des Jahres 1560 erreichten wir die letzte Passhöhe des Andengebirges und sahen zum ersten Mal in den gelobten Urwald hinab. Am Morgen las ich die Messe, dann stiegen wir durch die Wolken hinab. Stop it there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it was. Uh, it was good that you showed this clip because, in in a way, in a way, it it, it looks. Uh, uh, there's a affinity with Hercules Segas, and long time before I discovered Hercules Segas, so. Um, how do you, How does one explain this? I don't know. There, there are. There are certain ways to see a landscape or to see our world, which uh, has resonated in other people long before you. And all of a sudden there's a connection, there's a cohesion. And uh, without these people, uh, I would be very much alone. And uh, had I not discovered him later, uh, I probably would have continued making what I do, but it's good to to, to know you, there are cohorts out there. Uh, strangely enough, the uh, Whitney Museum asked me, yeah, why, uh, how do you go to museums? And so I said, I never go to museums. Only my wife, Lena, goes to museums. Yeah, but why don't you go to museums? It, it, museums frighten me. And, um, and there's something which uh, is hard for me to overcome. And, and I said to them as some sort of an, an, an answer to calm them down, I don't go to museums because I do not like art. I, I am sure that was reassuring to them. That was, <laughs> and, and the and answer was, yeah, but you are an artist. My answer was, no, I'm not an artist. I'm a soldier. So You've said you're, you're a soldier of I'm film. I'm a soldier, period, yeah. I'm a soldier of cinema. But uh, let's face it, I, uh, I must say in retrospect now since I've seen the, uh, the opening of the Whitney, uh, it, it was right that I, that I ended up there. Although... You began in Sachagen, you ended up at the Whitney. In, in a way, yes, but not, not permanently, hopefully. <laughs> so... 
but for this very moment, I'm doing wild stuff. I mean, I uh, all of a sudden this is there, and uh, and you have heard uh, the the reading of "Go the Fuck to Sleep." Meanwhile, just a few months ago, three months ago, I was uh, playing a villain in a Hollywood production with Tom before, Cruise. Before "Go the Fuck to Sleep." Uh, no, much later. That that came much later. It was just before Christmas. Do you, do you, do you enjoy playing villains? Uh, I'm good at that. I'm really good at that, yes. Although my wife will testify convincingly that I'm a fluffy husband. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm, uh, I can look dangerous on screen. And they, they noticed the production and the director, they noticed uh, that I was good at that. Let's move to this row into yeah. the abyss. And I think before even talking about it, yeah. let's look at um, clip number 70. Let's see. Uh, 70. Ah, yeah, number 70, uh, Hank Skinner, who had three dates uh, with uh, death already. And in one case, he came 23 minutes uh, to his execution. Clip 070, please. Hank Skinner. You know, you know, if I dropped you off in the middle of a tornado, you're not going to have some very good strategies either. You know what I mean? You can lay down on the ground and hope it passes over you. You know what I'm saying? You have to understand. Let's, let's not talk about the, the details of your trial and so fact is you are here on death row and, mm. and you are as different than we outside on the other side of this glass. We do not know when we are going to die and how we are going to die. Yeah. How familiar are you with the details in the rituals? Very, very. I was within 20 minutes of execution. I had had my last visits. I, they took me over there to the walls. I was in the death house. So. Yeah, what is missing here? But it's okay how de he describes his last 20 uh, last minutes with his last meal. But it's it's a very fascinating case because he's such a good storyteller as well. 17 years now on death row and he won a landmark decision. Uh, he's a very good storyteller and at the same time you you very with all in all these interviews yeah. you you break the 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 uh, inmates and say, let's not go to the details yeah. of, of your uh, trial. Yes. You're on, why, why this urgency and this, in a way, constraint? Uh, well, I have 50 minutes with these uh, inmates on death row to talk to them. 48 minutes into the discourse, I feel a hand on my shoulder, and that is a guard, a kind guard, trying to let me know you have got another 120 seconds. So you uh, you have to contain things and you have to be uh, you have to perform and you have to find the right tone immediately. And I I keep telling them uh, every single one on death row uh, your childhood in one case uh, of Michael Perry who was executed eight days later. Your childhood was was a very bad one, a very complicated one, which number one doesn't exonerate you, and number two it does not necessarily mean that I have to like you. 120 seconds in the discourse, and I knew the film could be over at that moment. He could just stand up and leave. He didn't, because uh, 
uh, he and the others saw that I was talking to them really straight. Uh, no phony arg arguments, no uh, uh, commiseration, no way to make heroes out of them, the outlaw heroes or whatever. So it's it's not not part of these films. So you you really have to to find the right the the, the right sort of of context. And uh, we have, for example, Hank Skinner. Um, well, the last meal. Shall we show that? Which one? The Skinner's last meal. Absolutely. Four. Let, let's show. Yeah. I went through the whole thing. The only thing, the only thing was they didn't kill me. I ate, I ate my last meal. I was. What was in the last meal, if I may ask? Um, I had three pieces of Popeye-style fried chicken. Not from Popeye's. They fix it here, but it was spicy. Yeah. I had two catfish fillets. I had um, a bowl each, a little small finger bowl of, uh, of boiled eggs that was ground up, uh, bacon bits for the salad, uh, ranch dressing, tartar sauce, onions, and sh uh, shredded cheese, mm -hmm. cheddar cheese, and a bacon cheeseburger, and a large order of fries, and a, and a big pitcher of chocolate milkshake. Yeah. Well, uh... I'd like to show each of these death row films has an opening sequence which is identical, just uh, explaining my own position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, death penalty. Um, can we show number... 75. 75, yes. Each of these films opens the same way like this. So that's the last corridor. Bibles out there. And this is the last holding cell. Penalty exists in 34 states of the United States of America. Currently, only 16 states actually perform executions. Executions are carried out by lethal injection. Utah is the only state that until recently allowed the option of a firing squad. As a German, coming from a different historical background and being a guest in the United States, I respectfully disagree with the practice of capital punishment. Yeah, it's important that I say that I respectfully disagree because as a German with a background, historical background of the Nazi atrocities, uh, I would be the last one to tell the American people how to handle their criminal justice. Nor would I like to tell the Chinese or the Indians or the Pakistanis or the Indonesians or the Egyptians uh, as a German how they should handle their criminal justice. Unpack a little bit more this, this notion of as a German. Well, as a German, uh, it's, it's simply 
you see, I, I don't even have a real argument against capital punishment. I don't have a philosophical argument. I only have a story, and that's a history of, of Germany during the darkest time of Germany and all the atrocities and monumental crimes. You had uh, capital punishment in excess. Parallel to that uh, euthanasia, a systematic program to annihilate everyone who was either retarded or, or insane, you would be killed off by the state because you were unworthy life. Uh, on top of that uh, genocide of six million Jewish people, end of story. There's no argument, it's just this story. Uh, and there's no one in my generation, none of my peers, you would not find anyone who would be an advocate of capital punishment. But this is a very specific situation. And, uh, and of course, uh, I voice my um, disagreement. Uh, I voice my different opinion with uh, what is happening in 16 states of the United States. By the way, the, uh, the curve is, is slightly declining. More and more states in, in your country uh, are um, starting moratoriums or abolishing it altogether. So it, it, it looks a little bit better than, let's say, 10 years ago. And when you say in your country, you also have said that one of the reasons, perhaps the reason you wouldn't take American citizenship is because there is capital punishment. Capital punishment. Yeah. Yes, I, I wouldn't become a citizen of America, be, but that's the simplest of all reasons. But I would not become a Chinese either, nor would I become an Egyptian, a Saudi Arabian, a Pakistani, a Indonesian, or you just name it. India still has it, all the populous nations on this planet don't have it. Uh, a, a very wonderful exception is Russia. They abolished it under a year or less than a year ago. Uh, one of the great achievements of President Putin, whom I uh, find a very, very remarkable, very effective president, who really took Russia out of, of a cataclysmic uh, hole of a misery, of um, brought them back to dignity, made all the robber barons pay taxes now. The, uh, all the oil assets were owned by an equivalent to, let's say, the Gabino family or Gotti or Lucky Luciano and, and people like that. Uh, they fled the country because they, they would end up in jail, rightfully so, because they've committed murder. They robbed the country of its resources. So it's uh, great achievements uh, during, and, and it's, I, I hear it all the time in the media. There's this kind of of deliberate uh, sort of trying to put him down, although he would be a great ally for the United States. He would be a great ally. Anyway, I do not want to be too elliptic, but uh, Russia gave it up, which I find is a fine achievement. In the, in the very first clip we saw of Skinner, one of the very interesting things yes. you, you comment upon is precisely the difference between being inside and outside, right. behind the, the glass uh, mirror and you on the other side. Yes. There's a difference because he knows that he will die. We, we yes. know we're going to die, yeah. but we don't know when. 
Yes. This is this is one of the the central parts. Yes. One However, might say. Skinner had three dates of execution already set, uh, and got a reprieve. And and the United States Supreme Court actually uh, did a ruling in his favor. It's a complicated legal thing, where you can essentially, after the trial phase, uh, reintroduce into the debate. Um, evidence that was not tested before or during the trial or not brought forward during the trial. Uh, so in his case, it may be it may be a very important item, but not only for him, it's for other uh, any other death row inmate quite important. It's a landmark, and he won it, and he is very savvy in terms of uh, of legal affairs. He uh, uh, and came you, you, up. You're quite taken by how how savvy and shrewd some of these inmates yes. are. Yeah, and some of them uh, are very eloquent. Some of them, all of them, uh, I, I do not debate guilt or innocence. In most of, in many of the cases, they admit, yes, I did this and that. Uh, and, uh, but in some cases, I, I have sympathy, for example, George Rivas. George Rivas was one of the famous uh, Texas Seven Seven desperate inmates uh, ten years ago broke out from a maximum security prison in southern Texas, um, and it was a phenomenal plan. I, I mean, it's an unbelievably intelligent uh, plan with military precision executed. They took over the entire maintenance area. Um, they overwhelmed uh, 13 guards. Some maintenance workers took their clothes. Their, um, their badges, their IDs, waved up to the towers, did fake inspections of the pickup truck. And so, but what, what was astonishing in case of Rivas, he was some sort of, I say it now mildly, a little bit euphemism, some sort of a gentleman robber. He would go into, let's say, a, a store like Radio Shack in the outfit of a, uh, of a security uh, guard, and he would say, the, "Your headquarters sent me. There's a lot of theft going on in your store. Uh, please bring all the employees together." And he even had uh, some sort of a, a lineup, photo lineup of perpetrators, which he fabricated himself from photos out of magazines, and he put it together. And once everybody was uh, called into the main room, he would pull a gun and he said. Uh, guys, uh, I'm not a security guard, I'm sorry, I want your money. So please don't do, do not do anything stupid. Just don't do anything stupid. One of the people whom he uh, took uh, prisoner uh, asked him to be shot. He wanted to be shot and he said this man just had a bad day and he, the robber, like in an absurd drama, had to dissuade his hostage from him shooting the guy. So it's, uh, uh, there was never any bloodshed. Uh, he never hurt anyone, uh, got away with a couple of robberies this way. But for every single person that he locked away, he got one life sentence and he got 18 consecutive life sentences. For the prison break, uh, where they took 13 people uh, plus four um, maintenance workers or so, he got another um, 17 life sentences. So he's got 
31 life sentences where never anyone was hurt. And he got 99 years in addition because they took the pickup truck of the maintenance workers, drove out slowly from gate to gate to gate, uh, fooling the guards in the towers, overpowering a guard in a tower. I mean, it's a fantastic plan. And they took this car, he took this pickup truck for two miles until he exchanged it in a, in a parking lot of, uh, of a big uh, department store. And for that, using this pickup truck for two miles, he got another 99 years. And all this was in um, uh, not concurrent, but consecutive life imprisonments, which means he serves maybe 15, 20 years on one life sentence, um, gets a hearing for uh, uh, parole, a parole hearing maybe, he's set, uh, that's over, but then he has to, to serve the next life since it's the next, 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 next. So, and we have uh, a clip a clip of George Rivas and I, I want to show it to you because uh, I have what to make an announcement it? here. Can we see uh, clip number uh, 069, 69, George Rivas? Do you see any chance for clemency? Not from, not from the state, no. No, sir, I don't. State of Texas in this case. Uh, do you know about your execution? Is there a date? Uh, when is it coming? It could be any day now, to be blunt about it. Uh, me and one of the guys, Newberry, our last appeal with the Fifth Circuit was denied us. So now it's the Supreme Court, and I'm not expecting nothing positive from Supreme Court. And to be blunt, I don't want another life sentence. I told you earlier that I was originally sentenced to 18 life sentences. When we escaped, the prison system ran court on us and uh, without us present. And they gave me another 13 aggravated lives. One aggravated life sentence for every officer that we tied up. They charged me with aggravated kidnapping. And they stacked, they added those life sentences to my 18 life. So I had 31 life sentences. And then they gave me a, a 99 aggravated sentence for taking that truck. And as I said in my trial, and it wasn't a ruse, it wasn't acting. I don't want another life sentence. What they call the death penalty, I call freedom because one way or the other, I'm going to have it. So, uh, so what I have to announce here is that after this film was done, uh, uh, just uh, sometime in, at the end of January, apparently, uh, early February, his uh, execution was set for February 29th, 6 p.m. Uh, time in Huntsville in Texas. Uh, so with all probability, he died 52 minutes ago. Um, I do not believe that I cannot verify it, I can, I, but I do not believe that he uh, had any last moment reprieve or clemency from the governor who is pride, priding himself, Perry, to uh, be tough on uh, death penalty. And uh, he uh, was sentenced to death uh, after the prison break. Uh, they were out for six weeks, couldn't be found. 
they committed a couple of robberies and now what is really, really terrifying, on Christmas Eve day, they robbed an Oshman's uh, sporting goods store, uh, took all the uh, employees hostage, put them, locked them away in a back room, uh, took uh, $72,000 and about 40 rifles and small handguns, and uh, somebody who saw some suspicious activity at the back ramp called police. And since it was Christmas Day, or, or almost Eve, because it was something like 6 p.m. at the closing time of Oshman's goods store, um, a lonesome police officer who was on duty on Christmas Day arrives at the back ramp and uh, runs into a barrage of gunfire. He died on the spot. Uh, and uh, he uh, did not return home where his wife and the six-year-old boy were waiting under the Christmas tree to uh, have Christmas, celebrate Christmas with dad. Uh, instead of that, they had to rush to the morgue to identify him. So in a case like this, a police officer on duty uh, and under all these aggravating circumstances, uh, all the seven uh, inmates who had fled were summarily sentenced to death because it didn't matter who was actually shooting. And the second one, Joseph Garcia, with whom I filmed, he was still, he didn't even know that anyone opened fire out there. He, didn't ba he barely heard the shots. He was still tying up hostages. Uh, another case where there was a disproportionality of punishment for earlier crimes. So, but uh, it, it is as grim as it gets that we are sitting here and uh, I would assume that George Rivas is dead and I would assume that his body is still warm. It's uh, as terrifying as it is, but uh, uh, I'm surprised by this. I heard about this only three days ago. And it no, is no. as it is. It is as it is. Why, why this interest or this, what one might even call an obsession of yours, which, no, it's no I, I know you don't like the word, but if I may, when you were 15 or 16 years old, yeah. you wanted to do a film on penal reform. Yes, didn't. yes, you it didn't. was my first serious film project when I was 15 or 16. I, I came across some documentation or some letters that I wrote at the time. Thanks God I didn't make the film at that time because it was very stupid. I mean, really, really, really immature and stupid. Thanks God it was dormant in me for a long time. I never uh, thought that I should make a film about death row. It's all of a sudden it was there and I, and I started almost immediately and uh, I got into this and Discovery Channel was, or Investigation Discovery Channel and Henry Schleif, I think is the correct pronunciation of his name, was immediately on board. His son is with us. He worked on this, uh, was very nice with, with him. And um, same thing, creative differences with whom I did Grizzly Man or the film in Antarctica in the film in the Paleolithic cave were immediately on board. So it was fairly easy to step into this project, but the, but, but the, the, the slalom the, yeah, into the, that was a longer one. And, and, and because the slalom into it is also, I think, in some way, a, 
pertaining to your interest in certain spaces. In this particular space, you are in a confined, constrained yeah. space where filmically you can do so little. That's you have, true, yes, you have, you have no... You, you have, I mean, yeah. they have nothing to, yeah. to, to work with, you have yeah. nothing to work with, and all you have, yeah. in effect, is this course. Yeah. And you cannot look left and right, there's just the, walls and, right. and, and bars. And so you, go from, you, you, caves, you go from the caves 32,000 years ago, yes. the caves of forgotten dreams, to these caves where they're also filled with dreams yeah. and filled with, because these, these inmates tell you, this particular yeah. inmate dead now wants yeah. to die, but yeah. most of them do not have this relationship to their yeah. own death. They, they well, it's probably the common denominator and what, what brings me into this is, uh, since you cannot look left and right or any, anywhere into any depth, there's concrete walls everywhere. Uh, and you are boxed in. It's an uh, attempt to look very deep into the recesses of our of our soul, into the very dark, grim uh, sort of abysses. Into the abyss is a very appropriate title, and I believe uh, it could have been the title for the cave film. In a way, it could have been the title for Aguirre, The Wrath of God, or The Great Ecstasy of the Sculpture Steiner. For quite a few films, it could have been, it could have been the right title. So it's a, the slalom is not really uh, that sinuous. It's it's almost a straight line from uh, when I was 15, 16 until today, where I come up with these films. There's no no real detour. It's just going straight into it. Straight. It, it took it took uh, 50 years in between. But still, it was some uh, sort of an almost immediacy. And into the abyss, you have that line that you have to know what you do with the dash. Yes. Between the, your date of birth and your right. last day. Yes. What uh, you do with your a dash. A former tie-down yeah. man, yeah. And, and he, his, you see, I'm not into, into the business of Texas bashing. He's a Texan man uh, who was the former captain of the tie-down team after 125 executions. He has to stop. All of a sudden, he starts shaking. We'll show a little bit yeah. later on, and and he 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 has a he has the last word in into the abyss. It's so beautiful. He speaks now that I have settled my life and everything is good now, and he is not an executioner anymore. And I look, I sit back, and I look at the trees and at at the birds. And he says, I look what the birds are doing, and I look what the ducks are doing, and the hummingbirds pause. Why are there so many of them? Cut, end of film. It's a, you see, I, I, I like to have a good end in a film of mine, but this is a real good one. So, and, and I owe it to Fred Allen, the former captain of the tie-down team. So there's very remarkable characters out there. Very remarkable characters, very remarkable storytellers. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we should... Uh, well, there's so many. Yeah, Sh should we show? Uh, well, about finding the right, the right tone. That's something, uh, something very astonishing. I would like to to jump to into the abyss, Jared Talbert. Yeah. There's a young man. Uh, what happened is in the film, 
you uh, see pretty much everything that I film because every single person I met in my entire life, 20, 30 minutes, in some cases 50 minutes. So my shooting ratio is, is, almost, is completely minimal. I have eight, eight hours of footage. And, and normally other filmmakers would, would do 400 hours. I have eight hours of footage. And in this case, in this case uh, a young woman who was a former bartender in a bar next to Conroe where the murders occurred, a triple homicide, completely senseless, in the neighboring town of Cut and Shoot, Texas. And she uh, uh, brought a young man along. I had no idea who he was. And she said, oh, I brought Jared along with me uh, because he knew the two murderers as well. So I said to him, just step aside. Let's not make her nervous here. So when I'm talking to her, and he looked at his watch and he said, yeah, but I have to go back to work. So I filmed with her 20 minutes. Then I turned the camera 90 degrees and said to him, uh, Mr. Talbert, can you please step in front of the camera? And I had no idea who he was. I had n never heard of him, never seen him. And what I talked with him is on camera, and I'll show it to you. It's part of Into the Abyss, and it is uh, 057, Jared Talbert. And what is remarkable, how you have to find the right tone immediately. I went over to my buddy's house. There was a guy there and he wanted to fight me. And uh, he run upon me as I got out of the truck. And uh, you know, I just kind of blew him off, you know what I mean? Just go on, man, go on, watch business. And uh, everybody said he, he was saying he was going to stab me when I got out of the truck. You know, it kind of pissed me off. So I, I went back, found the dude, and uh, run upon him. And I was taking off my shirt and I threw my, threw my shirt up like that. You know, and threw it up over my elbow. I was gonna take it off, and when I did that, he hit me right here with a screwdriver, and a screwdriver about that long, and it was a Phillips, you know, little skinny, long screwdrivers, and uh, sunk it to the handle. And after that, uh, all the way to the handle. All the way to the handle. How did it? That's probably probably about right in there. And it went straight straight through under my arm, into my chest, and uh. I never went to the hospital or anything. And what did you feel? You felt the... Yeah, just, uh, I felt the, the, you know, the pressure of it when it hit. That's all I felt. And I kind of jumped back out the way. And, uh, and I looked, and my buddy threw me a knife. And I looked down at the knife on the ground, and I was like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, my head, you know, I'm going home to my kids today. You know, so I didn't even pick it up. And then uh, my other buddy come out and run him out of the yard. And... Uh, I had to be at work in 30 minutes. Matter of fact, uh, I, I was roofing a house with Jason's brother, uh, what is it, Chris Burkett? And I was roofing a house with him. Chris was not in jail at that time? Nah. And you went to a hospital? Nah. And they was asking me if I need to go to the hospital or anything, but it just, some like pus and a little bit of blood come out and. You know, I thought I was good. <laughs> Evidently, I guess I am. So I was lucky there. But you have never been in, in real trouble with the law? Uh, I'm at a felony. That's the only bad, bad one I had. But you're a working man? Yes, you sir. Have a job. 
Yeah, I ain't been in trouble in four years. Can I see your hands? Yeah. When we shook hands, I noticed your calluses. You're working yeah. in a paint shop? Yep. Cars? Yes, sir. Solid work? Yes, sir. And the tattoo in here? Can I yeah, see it? Can you show it? You had been with her when you met Burkett? Nah. Not yet? Uh -huh. No. I've been with her for three years. And I uh, got a 17-month-old baby with her. Oh, yeah. Then so got... you're staying with her? Yeah. Now the tattoo is forever? <laughs> yeah, it's forever. Yeah, it just don't come off. And what happens if uh, the relationship unravels? What happens to Bailey? Guess I might have to get Bailey sucks right there. <sighs> Yeah. You you yeah. admire him? Yes, I, I really admire this young man and for another reason uh, because he was an illiterate and will show something later on. Um, I admire him because he uh, there's something heroic about him. Uh, he uh, being stabbed with a screwdriver that long through his chest a friend throws him a knife, it would have been the most legitimate reason for uh, fighting back with a knife. Uh, that would have been self-defense. And he decides on the spot he's not going to pick it up. And um, had been in, in prison a couple of times, uh, is clean, is out of everything, raises a little child, is a working man. And I immediately, what, what immediately gave the context was that I shook his hand and I felt the calluses. And, I and, mean, very and, intense and, and, calluses. And why was that significant? Because I, I had worked as a um, welder in a steel factory doing night shift uh, during high school years. Uh, and I really know what it means to get grow calluses on, on your hands. And, uh, and I immediately had a rapport, although I didn't tell him. And when I took him back home to his place, he had just to get some tools and then rush to, to his job. Uh, we, both of us, for 10 minutes in the car, wanted to say something to each other. And, and you know, among men, sometimes it's hard. You don't speak. You, you don't both know you, you should declare yourself in a way. So um, when he stepped out of the car, I said to him, Jared, just wait a second. And I walked around and I stood in front of him. And he said to him, uh, people always ask me, uh, uh, doing films with death row inmates, uh, that is really grim and uh, that's intense and does, is this a life-changing experience? My answer is no. My answer is no, it doesn't change my life. It doesn't change the course of my life. It changes perspectives, but it doesn't change the course of my life. And I said to him, Jared, you know what, uh, uh, having met you doesn't change the course of my life either but you know what, it makes it better. And he hugged me very briefly, I mean for a second, in, in, in embarrassment, a hard, quick hug, turned around and walked off. So that's a kind of... End of story. End of story, yes. That's, I never saw him again. Uh, and and I, I, I like this kind of behavior among men. It doesn't happen among women, it's different with women, they, they have a different rapport. It's not that, that kind of harsh and laconic and uh, uh, non-verbal, almost non-verbal um, 
but but yet it was a tactile context that I had with him. And, and, and I'm speaking the right language with him on the spot. It's interesting when you, you use the word tactile. Yes. Yeah, feeling his calluses. Yeah, I mean, That's the hands, so immediate, yeah, but, but also was, what is so utterly extraordinary about these films is that there is so little of the tactile that is permitted. Yeah. Right. Um, there, I don't know in which one of the films one of the inmates says that he hasn't felt rain. Yeah, for certain, eight years for or, eight so, or years. since 2001. I mean, who would say, who would say him, yeah. that they haven't felt rain? Yes. I mean, this is not something that yeah. you would uh, usually, in our yeah. course of life, feel that you're deprived mm -hmm. of. He hasn't yeah. been touched. And you cannot touch them because there's a bulletproof glass between us, between us two inches thick. And you, you, cannot, you cannot even shake his hand or anything. And uh, sometimes in these cases, uh, you have to be tactile in your discourse. How, I cannot explain it, but it's a very intense, very direct, very uh, also quite uh, something masculine. And in, in, a, in a strange way, I had similar kind of discourse with Fassbinder. We liked and respected each other. And, and sometimes we had moments and it was always kind of strange because there were all these gay men in, in leather jackets and tattoos and standing around with suspicion in their, in their eyes and looking at me. So, and all of a sudden, Fassbinder and I would hug each other very fleetingly, flee from each other and then walk, walk apart. So, in, in a strange same way, uh, I, I have had contact with filmmakers like Fassbinder. Extraordinary leap you've made from um, yeah. inmates to Fassbinder to hugging <laughs> to... No, but there yeah. is something... You're, you're interested in these constricted spaces, in yes. these impossible spaces, in these spaces where certain things are not permitted and even where it is really nearly not permissible to get into them. Yes. Like in the caves, you had to... You're not allowed to touch anything. You're not allowed to You're touch anything. You're not allowed to step off the metal walkway because there's a floor of the cave and, and there are tracks of fresh tracks of cave bears. And you know the cave bear became extinct 25,000 years ago. However, the, the tracks are still fresh. So you cannot step on top of it and leave the marks of your boot on, on, on top of this, or the, the footprint of a child uh, next to the footprint of a wolf. So, uh, of course, yes, extreme restrictions, and yet how do you look deep into... Uh, the soul of into man. the artistic soul of man, the awakening of the, of the human soul. That's what uh, the cave film is all about, in my opinion. So it, it sounds, you see, Paul, it sounds as if I was zigzagging around from Fassbinder to cave bears and to Jared Talbot. Uh, no, it is not. It's very linear. That's how, how I live my life. That's... Uh, that's how I'm, how I'm good, and uh, I, uh, I function well when it, when it comes to physical contact, when it comes to um, landscapes where I can touch the ground, where I can uh, grapple up on a, on a mountain, and 
I don't know exactly what it is, but I feel comfortable. In the in the caves, you you try to attempt to understand where the first impulses to creativity happened in some way, thirty-two thousand years ago, yeah. and. Um, in in these in the in this series of films, you're trying also to look deep in the soul of these inmates to yes. discover what, to discover <sighs> what about them, yes. what about them that is in in some way one Sometimes. might even say similar to us. Well, their dreams, for example, are nightmares, but sometimes they are worse than ours. <clears throat> it's it's a specific situation, but you have dreams that are, and I'm always fascinated. What do they dream? How do they experience time? Sometimes time races for them. Sometimes it seems to be at a standstill. It doesn't want to move. And we so have one case of a dream, a nightmare of James Barnes. Let's look at it. Yeah, uh, it's 066, uh, a man who murdered women. The, he himself, the ultimate nightmare for women. But let's see 066, James Barnes in Florida. That's his twin sister. Um, whom, uh, I've had some horrible dreams here. I mean, absolutely, especially when I first got here. Describe um, it. Wow. Uh, I remember my home in Maryland, and the grass was very green there. And for some reason, my twin sister and I were buried up to our heads, and my father was mowing the grass, and he was pushing a lawnmower towards us, and he, he ran over my, my twin sister's head. And I've had that recurring dream about five times. And it's, it just messes me up inside uh, because my feeling is don't do this to me, but I feel so terrified and, and repulsed by what just happened. The nightmares were so bad that I was mentally and physically exhausted during the day. And I could not understand why I had to have such horrific nightmares. Why couldn't I be normal like everybody else and have a normal dream? Yeah, uh, we c I actually Should have we a, look at a dream. A yes, she, she tells about a dream, which is 067, his twin sister. I've had, you know, a couple <laughs> real good dreams. Um, the one where God appeared to me. Um, um, Oh, please describe. That's what I want to know. Well, okay. The scenario yeah. was um, something bad was happening, and I was running from room to room to get away from this bad thing coming to get me. And um, all of a sudden, I seen this light in this doorway, and I was scared to go. I was scared to go behind any door because it, this this person was going to get me. But I ran, and all of a sudden, there was this big, just big giant image of Jesus, letting me know that. Nobody was going to hurt me now. And I'm like, the dream's over. And I'm sitting there looking at God, you know, and I wasn't even sure it was God. And, but I know it was, you can just tell. And Pastor Jan, she, I, I guess I invited her in my dream because I wanted to know, is this Jesus? And uh, she said, yeah, and ran out my dream. But it went from a real horrific scenario to just seeing God and, and him saving me. Just, it was just so big and such a glow and, He's so perfect, and yeah, it was just really, it was, yeah, it was a good dream. I love the rocking of the chair. Yes, yeah, yeah of course, I held the shot 
quite a while. It's a little bit, the clip uh, abbreviates it, but uh, it's a little bit longer. And, and she uh, tells about an incredible uh, drama in the family where the father would beat up her twin brother, uh, so-called uh, blanket parties. When the boy did something wrong, they, he would wrap his head in a blanket and everyone in the family, his siblings had to whip him with belts and sticks until he had welts and bloody face and and the the young man, the boy, couldn't go to physical exercise in or sports in school because he was full of welts and, and bruises and everybody laughed at him and he became angry and withdrew and everyone in the family, she included, she had 40 arrests uh, and two felony convictions and was into drugs and almost an overdose and she speaks about the siblings who are, uh, uh, her older brother committed suicide. Uh, the other, uh, he hanged himself. The sister, I don't know what. I mean, it's unbelievable things. And she mourns for her little brother who became, a, or the little sister who became a self-mutilator, which actually we had to cut out because we, we couldn't bring any um, medical reports about it. This is really a privacy between doctor and patient. And uh, there had to be censorship. By the way, censorship today is not the networks. It's not Henry Schleif who tells us you cannot do it. It's an error and omissions uh, insurance. They say, what if we get sued for this because we cannot verify it? Then we have to carry the burden of a lawsuit. You have to cut it out. So. Censorship today moves to error and omissions uh, insurances. It moves to completion bond companies and all sorts of things. There is censorship. There is censorship on television. I was, I was television. going to ask you because yeah. in, in so many of your films, you leave certain things out. If you think, about, self, if you, self yeah, if you think about Grizzly Man, there's yes, a famous scene there yes. where you do not, you, you make a choice. I make and a choice, but that's my, my choice. But did you make I, any such choices in these films where you um, left something yes, out? Yes, a few things I left out were uh, inmates who still have uh, an ongoing appeal say something that makes him look in a, uh, in a very bad light or, or even incriminating. But Barnes, and for I instance, confesses no. on tape to, to you of more crimes. Yes, Barnes actually liked me so much that he, he made a cryptic remark in, in a first meeting uh, that there were some things out there. I saw it in a 45-page transcript of his confession of a murder of a young nurse. And it's really, that was the ultimate nightmare for women. He entered her apartment secretly, stark naked, left all his clothes outside in a, in a bag, uh, hid in a closet, and from this closet for four hours watches her doing household chores, washing the dishes, uh, watching television, uh, taking a shower. His plan is to rape and murder her, which he actually did, and then he set her on fire, it's a burning bed case, uh, and uh, set the half-dead body on fire and, and left then. So it's, in a way, the ultimate nightmare for women. And he confessed he didn't want to talk to law enforcement anymore and didn't want to have any other uh, court procedures, and he would confess in details to two to more murders. 
but I had to tell him right away, I cannot keep this as a highlight, quote unquote, in a film. I have to hand this tape over to law enforcement right away. Within the next two hours, law enforcement has to see it. They have to verify your claims. And if you really murdered these two other persons, um, family members have to be notified. The bodies have to be excavated and on and on. So it's still ongoing. Um, and a, a relationship between the, the camera and, and confession. In a way, yes. Uh, uh, but but it's not that I really pushed it. Uh, I, no, I you, just you... mentioned there was a cryptic remark in your confession 10 years ago. It was just half a sentence. And the homicide detectives didn't notice it. They bypassed it, and, but I saw it. And I said to him, Mr. Barnes, there is something out there. Uh, am I right in the assumption that you have not told everything? And he makes some excuses, and I, I felt he was close to saying something, but he didn't. So next time I met him a few months later... That's when you pushed him? No. You I, had, I went into the cases. He named in a letter two names. Why don't you look into that? One case was a missing persons case. A young kid, 17 or 18, has been missing. And has been missing since 1988 an endangered missing person, let's say, upgraded him to endangered missing. And, um, and he, he confesses in detail, but I had the name, I had the background of the missing case. But I, for half an hour of the 50 minutes or so, I didn't ask him anything. And I, I noticed he became nervous that I didn't ask him. So he finally said, well, I've got a bucket list. And I said, so do I. Now, um, we drove on this uh, on-ramp uh, to Interstate 95 northbound, and we saw the ditch, the water-filled ditch, where a decomposed body was found. So now, tell us all about it. So it, then he opens up and speaks about and, it. And in a way, there, there's, there's, a, there's a pleasure in telling these stories. No, no there's no pleasure, but he, he, he actually converted uh, to Islam and made his confession about this burning bed case during the holy month of Ramadan. He wanted to, because at that time you are closer to the benevolent, to the almighty Allah, and, and the chance of redemption is better, so he confessed at that time. In, in this case, he wanted to have a clean slate at the end, uh, before he's being executed. No pleasure in, in telling us. But at the same time, just a moment later, he, he complains about his shackles. His feet are shackled and he says, oh, they hurt so much, they put them so tight. And it's, you can't believe how it hurts, just hurting. And last time when we met, it was freezing. It was freezing cold. And, and, and it just spoke about the murder of two people and complains that he, that he wasn't warm enough uh, the last time we met him. This kind of self-pity. I, I so it's us, very, very odd and very, very frightening. I want us to see um, clip number 68 before we move to illiteracy. Okay, yeah. um, Linda Carty, the prosecutor. Yeah. We as humans, we tend to be forward-thinking persons. We look to the future. 
And so what you have at this point in time is you have Linda Cardi, who is alive. She's caged. She's scared. And you have the opportunity to talk to her and hear her thoughts. And you can humanize her. What we tend to do, though, is we forget about the past. We forget about who the true victim here is. And it's not Linda Cardi, it's Joanna. But because we look forward and we can see and touch and hear Linda, we tend to forget about the person who is gone. And that's who I try to always keep in mind when I'm prosecuting a case, even death penalty case. I think Linda Cardi is a very manipulative, manipulative person, even while in prison, because she's very well-spoken. She's very convincing, and you want to believe her. You don't want to believe that anyone could come up with a plan this ugly, because we want to think of people as being nice and, and good. I have to make one remark. I do not humanize her. Uh, I do not make an attempt to humanize her. She is simply a human being, period. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, we shouldn't go too much into detail of the case. No. It's a very frightening, very bizarre, the most bizarre of all cases. The films actually will be shown on Investigation Discovery uh, during the month of March now, I think it starts to... Why was it important for you to make that comment about humanizing? Because well, you, you hear you, all, you, all the time you hear from, from people who are advocates of capital punishment, they are monsters. Why, why don't they even get a trial? Just shoot them, just hang them, hang them high. That's what okay, you hear. Okay, but, but and, then and are I say, you... No, I disagree, they are, uh, they are not monsters. The, the crimes are monstrous, but the perpetrators are always human beings, and I treat them re with respect as a human being. They are never monsters. They are human. And it's within the bandwidth of, of uh, human beings to do the most atrocious things and doing the most bizarre and senseless murders. It's part of our humanity. And, uh, and a cow in the field doesn't have it in it because they only have instincts. And a cow does not murder. But human beings, because they are human, are uh, capable of murder and are capable of, of the vilest, uh, uh, most monstrous plans. But they are not monsters themselves. And they all look very human. Uh, Harry, do you know when, when does the screenings, the airing start? I think in a couple of weeks, no. No, Just soon. Pardon? March 9th. And then every week there will be one of these films. But I, yeah. Shall we look at Jared Talbot again? Because yeah. there's one thing interesting, and we are sitting here in the library. In library. Well, it's, yeah. there was another comment I was going to make as a, yes. as a, a, a bridge between yeah. Talbot and what we just saw, is the notion of well-spoken. Kati yeah. is well-spoken. Yes. And you, you catch that from her. Yeah. And there's something dangerous in that well-spokenness.
um, in a way, yes, she as a prosecutor would be the last one I would like to have as my opponent being accused of murder. I wouldn't like to have her as my prosecutor. She's kind of scary and she's very, very effective and, and uh, is capable of emotionalizing a jury uh, in a way that I would not like to see uh, in a courtroom against me. So I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather uh, have a judge uh, and, and uh, waive the right to have a trial by jury before I, I get into a, a prosecutor whipping a jury into some sort of mob uh, uh, emotionality. Anyway, it's, there's a danger in the, in the jury system and it's a danger, a certain danger in uh, criminal justice in the kind of uh, uh, battle between defense and prosecution, like as, as if it was uh, a, TV, uh, a TV game show almost. Well, TV has influenced a lot. Let's go to, to Talbot with a little preface, which is that what, what strikes me so strongly in these films is the nature around these creatures, where they live, um, what you show of their surroundings, um, the, the, the bleakness of the landscape. Yeah. Okay, uh, can we see... Uh, it's 064... Jared Talbot. Seeing so many awful things that I don't deal with them. I just kind of put them back. Did Jason brag about crimes? He never bragged to me and my buddy Big Justin. We didn't even know it happened. And uh, there was, uh, they come got us from Justin's house, the police did. And they took us up there and it was like, y'all read the paper? And I told them I couldn't read. And then they didn't believe me. And they looked at my record, found out I can't read. And then, uh, so they read the paper to me and then told me what he had done. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Do you read now? Oh, yeah. So late you started to learn how to read. Yeah, I learned how to read. Wonderful, yes. I find this a great achievement. Yeah, it's awesome. You are much more connected now. Yeah. How does it feel? not to be able to read. You have to be much smarter than the others to understand the world anyway. Yeah, it's, it's kind of tough out there. You can't read, but I mean, because they ain't always there. Somebody gonna read it for you. But uh, I mean, I learned how to read in jail so I can write letters and read the letters. And, uh, other than that, I don't plan on going back. But I'm glad I learned how to read there. And you are doing good now. Oh, yeah. Staying busy at the pain body shop. Reading? Oh, yeah. Writing? Uh, not much writing. Uh, a lot of sanding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I really admire the young man. It's and, apparent. Yeah, and, but, and, but, he's, and he's, it, the best, he's the best of, of something you find in Texas. A good, good man. Now, a real, he, he, should, he should have some sort of a medal of honor. If the library could hand out medals of honor, they should give it to him. I'll try to see it's, to it. But um, yeah. you've always been interested in these character illiteracy. Yes, sure. And uh, I, I've always been fascinated by the eloquence of, 
uh, illiterate people. And when you look, for example, at television, I saw uh, Afghan tribesmen who are illiterate talking politics, and they talk with such eloquence and such erudition. Much when, when you look uh, around here and you hear interviews in the streets of New York City, uh, which is not the last corner of the world, uh, of, of, of this country here, uh, hardly anyone has this gift of speech and this gift of, of uh, political insight and erudition. So in a way, and, and illiterates have to be really smart to understand the world. Because and they have to read the signs in, without, yes. the, without the advantage. Yeah, uh, that, right. that literacy gives you. And I've you. always been fascinated by, uh, by the signs that are out there, that are clearly out there, and we cannot decipher them. We cannot understand what it means. And it uh, it's, has been a pursuit recently, uh, deciphering of linear B script in Mekanian uh, explain, Greek. Explain that a bit. Uh, well, it's linear B is a, is a script which was found on the island of Crete in Knossos, but also on the mainland, uh, Peloponnese, uh, Mycenae, and Pylos, uh, dating back to the Bronze Age, something like 1400 before Christ. And uh, linear A, which has slightly different or has different characters, uh, has been established. We cannot understand anything, but we we do know through very, very intense argumentation and study of what is there that it must be a non-Indo-European language. However, it was found out that uh, the um, Linear B script must be an Indo-European language. In 1954, 55 or so, uh, uh, incredibly intelligent uh, person and of course some predecessors to these studies, an architect, a young architect uh, who was into encryption. So uh, it, it goes into the deepest understanding of encryption, uh, of deciphering encrypted text like in the Second World War with grids, mathematical grids, and also understanding language at the very deepest level imaginary to find out this must have been a verb and it's an inflection of the verb or it's this must be a noun and the noun has cases, nominative, genitive, dative and so uh, and uh, it was established that it was not ideograms but the syllable language or, or syllable writing. So it's utterly fascinating and of course there's something like the disk of Festos which I would like to show to you, which was also found in Greece, but you probably have the number, Paul, of the Festos disc. Or can can you find it? There it is. Ah, yes, okay, sorry. Uh, uh, this is apparently, in, it's probably not ideograms, it's probably in some sort of a syllable. It's not alphabetic either, but probably syllables. And we know that there are certain words that are, have the same stem but a different ending. And we know uh, because of logical deduction that uh, it has to be read from outside towards the inside. Um, and uh, we'll never, we, we, we will never ever decipher it, no matter what sort of computers you try to apply, because we do not know what phonetically uh, the signs mean and more so we do not know in which language it was. 
for example, Etruscan can be read. We have Etruscan inscriptions in there uh, in Roman alphabet or close to Roman alphabet. We can read the texts. We can, we can phonetically, we can read an Etruscan text. I can read it aloud to you. But we have no idea in which language it was. And to some extent, I might say that the recalcitrant nature of yeah. such inscriptions, recalcitrant literally in the etymological yeah. sense of something that kicks you back, yes, is what interests you. Is it yeah, it fascinates some, to, me, yes. But to some extent, what fascinates you yeah. this is just that the truth is so elusive. Yes, and it's the same fascination because in this case, in linear B, uh, there was a solution, but when you when you look at the disc of Festos, there's two more images. I would like to show what sort of wackos, esoteric, new age wackos it attracts. And of course, they will never get anywhere. Can we see? Uh, yeah, this one. And and do we have? Yeah, it's it's kind of completely whacked. It's pseudo fringes fringes of, of Thorns, insanity visible uh, signs okay, absent yeah. signs i think we don't need to to show any more of of that but <laughs> but i'd like to go into a, a book that has been totally fascinating for me michael ventris and uh, john chadwick uh, documents in mccainian greek uh, we have one copy in the library we could, yes here what you see what you see here on the left page is is a script, which was uh, its tablets, and finally they were deciphered. Some of it still with a grey zone of uncertainty, but some things were deciphered with absolute certainty, and it was established. It was a, a proto, very early proto uh, ancient Greek, uh, of course seven eight hundred years older than uh, Homeric uh, Greek. And uh, certain things uh, were understood before it was deciphered. For example, numbers would show up, or ideograms. And uh, you would always know an ideogram always would be followed by numerals, by numbers, let's say olives or wine, jars of wine, five of them, and then a, a sign of, let's say, a transaction handed over to uh, and, and then we do not understand any further, but, but certain things were understood before uh, the script was deciphered. Can we rattle on a little bit? Yeah, here to, uh, on the left page, <clears throat> on top, on the left column, you see case one, case two. It's the same word stem, but has different, different endings. So it's a noun. It was quite clear this was a noun. And it was found out, can we rattle on a little bit? Yeah, on the right side, same thing, let's rattle on. And what they did, uh, grids, that, that is actually a, a, a technical method of deciphering uh, encrypted texts. Uh, can we rattle on? I think there's another grid which assigns the difficulties. It, it was found out 85 or 86 uh, signs. They are syllables. Kaki, Kiko, Ku, or so, but uh, to assign a phonetic value to a vowel. So that was very, very intricate thinking behind it. And uh, finally, the uh, Ventris managed to, to decipher it. Now we can understand what it is. Unfortunately, unfortunately, no poetry, no historiography, it's all bureaucracy, it's all book. It's all bookkeeping on these clay tablets, inventories.
uh, who owes how much tribute to whom, uh, who uh, has to be paid for his labor in the vineyards, how much names assigned with uh, certain duties and uh, payment for them, inventories. It's just bookkeeping. But uh, it's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal um, achievement of, of human intellect. And, and, and I like to engage myself into, into things like this because uh, if you do not keep yourself awake with these fascinations, you'll never be a filmmaker. I keep telling my students in the Rogue Film School, you will never ever be a filmmaker if you don't read. Read 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 read, 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 read. If you do not read, if you do not read, you will never understand the world, and you will never be a real filmmaker. So, and in the say something about this. And rogue, I mean, reading uh, books. Yeah, and, books. and uh, my wife Lena, in a pause after intensive discussion about reading and about texts. Uh, she was at the ladies' room, and from stall to stall, two young ladies who were at the Rogue Film School, school had a discourse, a, a, a ladies' room discourse, and one of them said, you know, Herzog, I think, is right. I, I should start to read, like, pause, 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 books. <laughs> <laughs> because, yes, people, people, people do read. People do read, but they... Um, but they read uh, Twitter or online or Facebook, and and 14% of uh, Americans, uh, and it's not in America like this uh, number is staggering, are functional functional illiterates, which means they can read, but they do not understand the meaning of a text, or they cannot follow uh, slightly complicated instructions or so. Uh, they they are functionally there. Um, somehow second-rate illiterates. And, and this is very alarming because this number is slightly growing. And that's very, very, very alarming. In this rogue school that yes. you've been running now for a few years, where you tell your students, read, 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 read. Yes, and they have They're, a reading yeah, list. Yeah, you have a reading list. A mandatory yeah. reading list. And, 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 and it's... The mandatory reading list is, for example, poetry, uh, Roman antiquity, Virgil's Georgics, or uh, old the Nordic poetry of the Eddas, or the Warren Commission Report, which, which is a phenomenal piece of literature, by the way. You should read it. It's phenomenal in its logic and conclusion, and it's a great crime story. A short story by Hemingway or Gargantua in Pantagruel by Rabelais. Which, the which intensity of storytelling, this, this wild, wild joy uh, and ecstasy of, of storytelling. And that's what, what, what we have to read. We have to go into it. And now, re and now this book, uh, The Peregrine, which you, uh, which you mentioned, uh, is, is going to be number one on the reading list now. Uh, on the mandatory reading list, and it's recently discovered uh, it has become a book uh, like for, for the writers. There's not a single writer who would not speak very highly of it, like Joseph Conrad is a writer's writer. There's nobody who would not see his genius. And uh, uh, J.A. Baker, of whom we know nothing, literally nothing, 
I think not even his full first name. No, we, we don't know his full yeah. name. And uh, he published this book in 1967 in England uh, when the peregrine falcons were precariously few left. Now they have a little bit uh, recovered after pesticides were taken off the meadows. And he describes it, uh, observations of peregrines with a intensity and, uh, and beauty of prose that is unprecedented. It's one of the finest pieces of prose you can ever see anywhere. And he goes in complete ecstasies. He goes in ecstasies where he morphs into a falcon himself. Where he, uh, sometimes all of a sudden, he describes how the falcon soars up into high, high, high and swoops down and then we, sw we swoop down. And all of a sudden, it's him as well swooping down. He and goes from just, the eye to the wee. It's just unbelievable. Then I read a passage, yes, I wouldn't I'm, stop you. Yeah. Yeah, about a, about a wren, a tiny little bird. Under the wind, a wren in sunlight among fallen leaves in a dry ditch seemed suddenly divine, like a small brown priest in a parish of dead leaves and wintry hedges devoted till death. It's just very, very, very beautiful stuff. Uh, what else? I mean, there's so much here. Uh, he describes an owl, but he's not trying to anthropomorphize the birds. He's really against that, an owl. The redness passed over the, well, wait here. It waited. Uh, its breast was white, the owl, thickly arrowed and speckled with, a, with tawny red. The redness passed over the sides of its face and head to form a rufous crown. The helmeted face was pale white, ascetic, half-human, bitter and withdrawn. The eyes were dark, intense, baleful. This helmet effect was grotesque, as though some lost and shrunken knight had withered to an owl. As I looked at those grape-blue eyes, fringed with their fiery gold, the bleak face seemed to crumble back into the dusk. Only the eyes lived on. The slow recognition of an enemy came visibly to the owl, passing from the eyes and spreading over the stony face like a shadow. But it had been startled out of its fear, and even now it did not fly at once. Neither, us, neither of us could bear to look away. Its face was like a mask, macabre, ravaged, sorrowing, like the face of a drowned man. I moved. I could not help it. And the owl suddenly turned its head, shuffled along the branch as though cringing and flew softly away into the wood. It's just, just very, very good stuff. Uh, let me see this. I have to read one or two short passages more. Uh, so this passage here. Which one? He flew east when I approached. Uh -huh. He flew, I think he speaks of an... Uh, of that passage. Of a, of a, yes, of a peregrine falcon. He flew east when I approached circle, then drift down towards me in a series of steep glides and stalls. I stood near the dead tree and watched his descent. This big rounded head suspended between the rigid wings grew larger and then staring up eyes appeared, looking boldly through the dark visor 
of the eye mask. There was no widening of the eyes in fear, no convulsive leap aside. He just came steadily down and glided past me 20 yards away. His eyes were fixed on my face and his head turned as he went past so that he could keep me in view. He was not afraid, nor was he disturbed when I lowered and raised my binoculars or shifted my position. He was either indifferent or mildly curious. I think he regards me now as part hawk, part man, worth flying over to look at from time to time, but never wholly to be trusted. A crippled hawk, perhaps, unable to fly or to kill cleanly, uncertain and sour of temper. Fantastic stuff. Yes, huh? you, you must read the book uh, because you as well, although you are sitting in a library, have to read, 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 read and read. We, we all are so, endangered, yeah. endangered species yes. in that way. Um, and, and what interests you, I think, also is the fact that J.A. Baker morphs into an animal. Yes. Um, but also... But it's an ecstasy. But ex he steps out of himself and steps into, morphs into, into a falcon or morphs into an owl. It's just very, very, very beautiful. Very and, beautiful. But respects the, different, the distance yes. also. Yes, exactly. Unlike yeah. Treadwell, who yes. doesn't respect it. Exactly, yes. Yeah. It's just very, very beautiful. You know what strikes me, Werner, is, is what attracts you here is that it is that this writing and Cormac McCarthy and other writers that yeah. you love, Melville. Yeah, they have a similar similar yeah. sort of transformation of but something into the sublime. And that's what I'm trying to do in my movies. I try to to yes, there are everything things out there and I try to to elevate them into something sublime. How uh, this is being done, I, I cannot really explain, but it's, I know it can be done, and it's, it gives you moments of, of true illumination, of something that is almost ec ecstatic. Uh, and do, do you have Cormac McCarthy here? I do, but before I... I, yes. I, I, I let's postpone that pleasure by one okay, minute. Yeah. Um, what... what links this together in, in my mind is yeah. that it's a fascination for for uh, creatures that are, as you've said about Lotte Eisner, that are saturated by life. Yes. And um, I, we spoke about this because Paul's parents are together over 180 years old. Both of them. And uh, ailing and uh, they have lived six, seven, eight lives. Uh, being under persecution by the Nazis, having fled to uh, Haiti. Uh, an unbelievable, just unbelievable lives uh, of incredible dignity. There's something completely and utterly dignified about your parents. And, and now they are saturated of life uh, and saturated with life. It's almost biblical. Yes, when... Uh, uh, Noah died at 820, saturated of life, and then he dies. And you are sure, yes, you have, your parents will pass away. They will not grow 240 together. They will eventually die, and you know that, and, and it will be many lives that you have to celebrate and a great dignity that you have to celebrate. So... Uh, I, I see something extraordinary in the presence of your 
uh, of your parents and I see something extraordinary in the life of someone like Lotte Eisner and, and quite a few others. So I, uh, I'm full, full of awe and I, in a way, I'd, I'd like to, what, whatever I do, they're always with me and the celebration of these people is with me as well. And it resonates in the films. You I have no doubt. G give me, give me Cormac McCarthy. Before I do, yes. <laughs> before I, I mean, you know, how many people tell you, give me Cormac McCarthy? Yeah. I mean, but before I do, um, I will give yeah. him to you and then we'll show one final clip. Before I do, yeah. um, when we had that conversation about my parents and for some reason, you yeah. know, you, you telling me that my parents will die. Well, like have, all of us, sure, yes. Yes, that's and, and, but human. somehow, yes. It is. And somehow also you've made this film now, the series of films on death row, um, another form of, yeah. of, 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 uh, of uh, an ending. Somehow your, your words to me, though incredibly sad, um, did not inspire me with, um, I mean, they were comforting in, in yeah, some, you, I mean. You face it because there's something extraordinary out there. And, and, and we are dwarfs against that generation. We are dwarfed by them. Um, it reminded me uh, Greet of... Greet your parents from me after I, this. I yeah. certainly will. Um, I remember one moment when, when we had such a discourse in London and my father had turned 91. Yeah. And you knew that my father, when he left Vienna, um, a medical student, he came to Haiti to plant vegetables. He wrote to burpees and got some seeds from them and started to plant vegetables that hadn't ex existed yeah. before. Yeah. And you, you met my father and the first thing you asked him is, what shoes did you wear when you were walking down the street? Because he had to, to walk many, many miles just to bring one cabbage to the market and get a few dimes. You were interested, to in, you were interested in that detail. Because and I my father, he was who, who you know, met yeah. you for the first time and heard you say, What shoes do you wear? He turned to me and he said, I like your friend. <laughs> um, it was a fantastic comment. But, you know, um, yeah. I could go on about my parents yeah. and that would be the subject of another session. But there, there, um, there is a, a, a line of Emerson I'd like to read to you, yeah, okay. where he says, Our fear of death is like our fear that summer will be short. But when we have had our swing of pleasure, our fill of fruit, and our swelter of heat, we say, we have had our day. That's quite beautiful, isn't yeah. it? Okay, now I can give you Cormac McCarthy. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I like Cormac McCarthy very much. He writes the best prose in America these days, and it's the end of all the pretty horses. I read a few lines. The desert he rode was red, and red the dust he raised, the small dust that powered, powdered the legs of the horse he rode, the horse he led. In the evening, a wind came up and reddened all the sky before him. There were a few cattle in that country, because it was barren country indeed. Yet he came at evening upon a solitary bull, rolling in the dust against the blood-red sunset, like an animal in sacrificial torment. 
it all there. It's just very, very fine stuff. And I like the way he sees landscapes and transforms it into great poetry. And uh, film can do something similar uh, in a different way, but... Uh, that's what I'm after, and, and, and I'm and with with Peregrine. You you have said Peregrine. It's, it's it's a it's way to. I tell my students in at the Rogue Film School if you you have to watch the world with this intensity and with this love and with this ecstatic sort of uh, uh, of of uh, emotion and 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 passion. Passion. Yes, emotion is bad. Passion. You have to watch it. And, and then deserves, all of a sudden, you will, you will, yes, it is the, the world deserves it, and the and the passion and the everything will transform into movie. In a way, that's what you have to do. That's how you have to 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 view and watch the world. We began with Sega's, uh, and now we will end on another kind of landscape, the Holy Land of yes, Skinner. Yes, but it's. I, I must say, it's. Uh, when Skinner uh, spoke about his last trip that he did, where he was 23 minutes close to execution. Uh, death Row is in Polunsky unit in Livingston, Texas, but there's no death house, there's no execution chamber. The prisoners are taken 43 miles to Huntsville, to the walls unit, where you have the execution chamber that you actually saw. And uh, he, for the, last, for the first time in 17 years, sees a tree, an empty gas station, or an abandoned gas station, or things out there, the shittiest things. And, and the way he speaks about it, uh, and the way he sees this for a last time, the first time in 17 years, and he knows this is going to be the last time. It made me curious, and I just followed these 42 miles uh, along this route to death. Um, and I show a little bit of it at the end of the film, it's a very unusual end for a film uh, which is going to be shown on Investigation Discovery, but uh, Henry Schleif was enthusiastic and he's going to show it like that. So uh, I'd so like to show it to you because in, in a way, yes, uh, Death Row films have not changed my life, but they have changed perspectives. All of a sudden I see the, 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 the corridors down down where the heating pipes are running uh, along. You said, ah, yeah, this is, this is the ugly underbelly. No, it's magnificent. What's under here, the deep underbelly of this library is magnificent. And, and when you look under, what's the park, Bryant? Bryant Park. Bryant when you park, went. there's six or eight floors of, of millions of books. All of a sudden, you know, you are stepping on Bryant Park and under you is the knowledge of this planet and it's physically stored. So all of a sudden, this Bryant Park where you are stepping, this is holy ground. It's absolutely, but only because we know we, we sense it in a different way. Let's, let's see Skinner's... Uh, holy Land. Which one is that? 72. Uh, 72. When you did this trip, and you knew you were going to Wall's unit, to the death house. Could you see the landscape out there? When we got to the end of the driveway, I was so happy to be leaving this place. I hate this place. I despise this place. It was almost like seeing something alien. I'm saying if someone took you to, like, say, Israel and set you down in the middle of the Holy Land, it was the very first time you'd ever saw it. 
You know, it, you'd be in shock, in awe. You know what I mean? So when you see stuff like that, and you know that you're going to die, you know, the whole thing. I was, at certain points over there, I was just laughing insanely to myself because it's like, this can't be real. <laughs> There's no way in hell this, this is really happening. I'm having a bad dream, and I'm going to wake up in a minute, and somebody's going to tell me, you know, what's wrong with you, man? You're talking in your sleep again, you know? Inspired by Hank Skinner, we took this trip for ourselves. The landscape bleak, forlorn. And yet everything out there, all of a sudden, looked magnificent, as if entering the holy land. Hank Skinner's holy land. worm bait shop in the Holy Land. We even saw something which looked like a few stray apostles on the road to death. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.